0: As you're being seated this morning, would you grab your copy of God's Word and would you turn with me to the book of Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 1 verses 9 through 20 this morning. Revelation chapter 1 verses 9 through 20, we're working our way through this book just started recently, being encouraged by the fact that we have a Savior who is reigning now, who is returning soon, and who is renewing all things for his glory. And that's why we want to know this book. So I'm going to start reading in verse 9 to verse 20, hear the word of the Lord this morning. Hi John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands as though dead but he laid his right hand on me saying fear not i am the first and the last and the living one i died and behold i'm alive forevermore and i have the keys of death and hades write therefore the things that you have seen those that are and those that are to take place after this as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are The seven churches as far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing in the preaching and hearing of it. Our Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that through the hearing of it, that the word of Christ might transform us more and more into a proper knowledge of Christ, a proper affection for him and a proper living unto him. Lord, we need to see Jesus as he is. Help us to do that this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, recently I came across these series of photos uh, on the internet called Pinterest Fails. I don't know if you've seen these before, but they're they're two-sided photos. On one side, it is labeled expectation. It's this picture of this beautifully, deliciously decorated bakery item, or some you know, wonderfully crafted, you know, homemade craft for the seasonal holidays. But then right next to it on the other side is an image labeled reality. So you have expectation and reality. And on the reality side is displayed something that is as hideous as it is humorous. It's this ugly, distorted, gross-looking, somewhat representation of what was on the expectation side. And there's just enough resemblance that you know they really gave it a good effort. They tried hard. And yet someone thought, I should probably put this on the internet. And yet it is so awful and so inaccurate that you thought, who in their life does not love them enough to tell them this really is not the hobby? This is not the hobby for you. Well, awful and inaccurate distortions make for a good laugh when it's low-level consequences like baking and seasonal crafts. But what about when the stakes are much higher? What about when we're talking about the nature, identity, and character of the person of Christ? What about when we're talking about the most important question that you can ask yourself and answer? Who is Jesus and what is he like? Because there is no question for which accuracy is more essential and distortion is more dangerous than that question. What is Jesus like? Who is Jesus? I'm going to paraphrase a famous quote by A.W. Tozer. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about Christ, that is the most important thing about you. You might think the most important thing about me is my job, my success, my portfolio, my successful parenting, whatever you name it. No, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about Christ. Because our affection, our motivation, our hope, our perseverance, our worship, you name it, will rise or fall to the level of our low or high thoughts about Christ are accurate or distorted thoughts about Christ. And distortions of Christ abound. There is no lack of inaccurate, distorted thoughts about Christ. There is the good moral teacher, Jesus, who gives very helpful life advice. He gives very good counsel about how to deal with this person or that situation, good things to live by, because he wants to help you become the best version of yourself. Or there's the always affirming Jesus who supports and upholds you and encourages you in all the things that you do and wants to affirm everything you do because there's nothing more important to him than your personal happiness and (laughs) self-actualization. Or there's the intellectually stimulating Jesus who is fascinating to talk about, fascinating to study, fascinating to debate. He gives you wonderful topics to really spend a lot of time reading and thinking about in a cold, impersonal manner. And the list could go on. Perhaps you can make your own list of ways you've seen Jesus distorted or you've sensed him distorted in your own heart and life. Because we love, not only in our lifestyle but in our theology, things that are comfortable. We love things that are manageable. We love to make Jesus after our own image and likeness, craft him after what our heart's Desire. Or, to put it another way, we want a Jesus who is like our pets harmless, domesticated, and not too demanding. That's how we like our pets and our Jesus. If your understanding of Jesus is one in which he never disagrees with you, never convicts you, never overwhelms you with his holiness, you might have a small view of Jesus, or worse, a Jesus formed after your own image and likeness. We need to see Jesus as he is, not as we comfortably like him to be for us. And this is why revelation is so important, especially these opening verses. Amidst all the dangers we face of distorting, of distorting Jesus or distorting him in our own hearts, these verses help us see more accurately the heights of his majesty and the depths of his mercy. In in these verses, it's as if John is a tour guide for us. And in his tour guide, he wants us to ascend first the heights of Jesus' glories and his majesty as the risen, exalted king. But then through what John experiences when he falls down as though dead, he wants us to understand the depths of Christ's mercy and the comfort that comes from it. He wants us to have both. An illustration I think of is when um, Aslan is described in Narnia, the kids mention that his paw was this sweet, velvety feel, but it also felt at the same time like it could crush them at the same time. There, there's a sweetness and a majesty about it. And like I said, if you want to understand my sermons, you got to read the Bible and you got to read the Narnia series. So that's, that's about all I read. But it's, there, there's a sweetness and yet a sovereign majesty about Christ. And So the first part of our tour is going to be ascending the heights of his majesty. The second part is diving into the depths of his mercy. But first... Let's meet our tour guide who brings us on this journey. So John introduces himself to us in verse 9, and we've looked at these verses a little bit the past two weeks. But when John introduces himself, John implicitly tells us something about Jesus that we find very uncomfortable. Look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And oh, how we wish John would have said, I, John, your brother and partner in the prosperity that are in Jesus, in the easy living, in the gated community lifestyle that is in Jesus, or, or at least in the blending in that is in Jesus, the not standing out that is in Jesus. Instead, John uses that uncomfortable word, tribulation, to remind us that Jesus never promises us comfort in this world. You want to find a verse where Jesus says things are going to go wonderfully smoothly for you. In the Bible, you will search in vain. You won't find it. It is not a promise that he gives us in this life. In fact, when Jesus has disciples with him in that upper room, that last supper he gets to have with them, one of the final things he says to them to prepare them for what's ahead is John 16:33 using the same word that John uses to describe what he's going through. He says, "In this world you will have trouble. You will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome this world." We'd love for the logic to be a little different. We'd love for Jesus to say, "I have overcome this world, therefore you'll have no problems in this world." But that's not what he says. That's not what he says. John's very own circumstances of exile on Patmos tangibly demonstrate to us something about Christ that we need to know. Faithfulness to Christ is often costly. Jesus promises us that faithfulness to him will often be costly. And that's hard for us because we live and swim in a culture that values successfulness. Think about The idols and icons of our culture, kind of think of what, you know, person in your mind, are often people who are living the successful life that we would really like to be living. So we, we read books, we listen to lectures, we look at YouTube ads that people promoting, you know, I got the six-figure salary, you know, selling something on Amazon or something like that. Or here's how to be successful now. And we like that because that's what we want. And yet John demonstrates that the kingdom of God is upside down. It's inverted from the values and ways of this world. In fact, he says to us, the value of Christ's kingdom is faithfulness to Christ, no matter the cost. That is the value of the kingdom of Christ. And so if you patiently endure tribulation in the name of Jesus, even if you end up with an all-expense paid trip to Patmos to be an exiled prisoner, that is successfulness in the eyes of Christ. That is successfulness according to the values of the kingdom of Christ. And if you gain the whole world, and at the cost of gaining the whole world, you forfeit your soul, that is a wasted life according to the values of the kingdom of Christ. If you have all this world has to offer, but you do not have Christ, you have nothing. If you have Jesus and you have nothing that this world has to offer, you have everything and more. Christ calls us to a costly faithfulness, not earthly successfulness. And as John is dealing with the consequences of his faithfulness, we discover that he may be exiled from society, but he is not cut off from fellowship with Christ. Look at verse 10 with me. He's on Patmos, but verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write this. So John's alone. He's exiled, but he's not alone. He's in fellowship with Christ. He's on Patmos. Yes, a prison island of the Roman Empire, but he's in the spirit. And he's dwelling near the presence of Christ. Christ is near to the brokenhearted. He is near to his people. He does not forsake his own. So you have this phrase, in the spirit, describing John's experience. And then in connection with the command that comes in verse 11, Jesus says to him, write what you see. And then he lists the seven churches. So John's in the spirit and he's told to write. And a lot of what you can think about in the book of Revelation is that John has scattered these hyperlinks throughout Revelation, these Old Testament hyperlinks. If you ever get an email, open an email, you see that kind of blue underlined writing. You click on it. Sometimes it's spam. Sometimes it leads you to what you actually want to go to. In the Old Testament, or in, in the book of Revelation, what you have is numerous, hundreds of Old Testament hyperlinks where John wants you to click and go back to the Old Testament and see what he's talking about. So if you were to click on this in the spirit, write what you see in a book, hyperlink, it would take you back to places like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The prophets of the Old Testament who were guided in a supernatural way by the Spirit to see in a unique way the unfolding of God's purposes and plans for humanity that they might write them in a book that we might know that God is the one who declares the end from the beginning and everything in between, that he is the first and the last, that he rules and reigns, that his counsels will stand and no one shall thwart his purposes. And so John stands in that long line of godly prophets who are given a unique way to see into the future so that he could write to us what is going to take place. In a sense, John is commissioned to be the final prophet, as it were, writing the final chapter of God's unfolding plan and purposes of redemption. That John gets to write the conclusion that everything is co- going to come to its final resolution in the return of Christ and in Christ who makes all things new and brings them to their glorified form. Well, notice that when John has this experience, he has not lost track of time in his prison sentence. He knows what day it is. Look at verse 10 with me. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So oftentimes when you're cut off, exiled, or you're you're somewhere else, you can lose track of time very easily. John has not lost track of time. He knows when it is, and he knows where he is. The Lord's day... In light of the resurrection of Christ, that morning on the first day of a new week, which is Sunday, the New Testament church gave that day, that first day of the week, Sunday, a new name and a new purpose. So it's new name, what we see John call it is the Lord's day because on that day, Christ was vindicated as the one who conquered and reigns over sin and death and hell and everything else. That's why they call it the Lord's day It is the day in which Christ demonstrated in the real and ultimate way that he is the conquering king. Well, to use Narnia terms again, Christ on Resurrection Sunday cracked the stone table because of the deeper magic that the enemy did not know about. And because he cracked the stone table, death itself has started working backwards and he is breathing new life into stone statues. That's what he's doing now. So that's why it's called the Lord's Day. But it also has a new purpose for this new day. It became the gathering assembly day of the New Testament church. Each Sunday throughout the ages of church history, believers have gathered for worship saying, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice in his resurrection. Let's anticipate his return and hope in the fact that he is going to make all things new. It's the day of rest, rest in worship, anticipating the eternal rest that should come. The rest from sin, the rest from sorrow, the rest from suffering that is to come. That's the Lord's day. And on this Lord's Day, what does John get to experience? He gets to see the Lord of the day in a unique way. He gets to gaze at the glories of Jesus and his majesty and mercy so that he can communicate to us more accurately what Jesus is like. Well, keep in mind as we look at these descriptions that John is not trying to give us descriptions that we can draw a portrait of Jesus. So if you're a good artist, you could could try and draw some of these. I'd be interested to see how it comes out. But John's goal is not to tell us what does Jesus look like? John's focus is what is Jesus like? What is he like in his identity, his character, his attributes as the reigning, risen, ascended, exalted Christ? Because think about it, The John who's describing this is a John who knew Jesus very well. He knew what Jesus looked like for those three years where he walked with him, talked with him, ate with him. But what he sees on this day is different. And we know it's different because he falls down as though dead before someone he was very familiar with. So John's focus is what does Jesus look like in his character and attributes, and he does it through the imagery and symbolism of physical characteristics. And so with each one, John helps us grasp something of the overwhelming heights of the majesty of Christ. First, we see Jesus' location. Where is Jesus? Look at verse 12 and 13. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And I'm turning. I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So I'm not going to be able to go into all the Old Testament references that are alluded to here and connected with here. If you look in your bulletin on page seven, I tried to kind of give you a homework assignment. Your homework assignment, your mission, should you choose to accept is to look up all those Old Testament references and see how John is weaving together this wonderful thread of prophecy. In Christ. Well, we first see Jesus' location. He is one like a son of man who is standing in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Well, If you jump to the very end of verse 20, notice that we don't have to guess what these lampstands are. This is one of those times in Revelation where you're very grateful that they tell you what it is. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the church, you and me, not, not the building, you and me, the people of God, are like lampstands. We're called to be light shining in a dark place so that the light of Christ might pierce this dark world. But like lampstands, like the lampstands in the tabernacle the Old Testament, we need a priest who can tend to them, who can trim them, who can supply oil for them so that the light of our flame does not go out. And we are in jeopardy of snuffing out our own lampstand at times as well by our imperfections, our impurity, our being tempted by this world to be too much like it. And yet we have such a great high priest in Christ who is always present, ever tending to, ever caring for his church. He is always in the midst of the lampstands, always caring for his bride whom he purchased with his own blood. You think about the church. The church is not the most highly reputable institution in this world in people's eyes. So many people, for various reasons, either give up on the church, want nothing to do with the church, or treat the church like that family member that you don't really like, but you have to see on holidays. And the church has many unflattering adjectives used to describe it. Hypocritical, judgmental, greedy, superficial, self-righteous. Well, this could go on. And yet, despite the varying legitimacy of some of those adjectives, Christ will not and has not abandoned his church. Christ loves his imperfect, impure, never Perfectly faithful bride. Despite our many flaws, Christ is faithful. He remains with us. He is steadfast toward us. If you jump ahead to verse 16, there's another description of the church in verse 16. It says, in his right hand, he held seven stars. And verse 20 again tells us what this is. The seven stars symbolize the seven angels of the seven churches. Now, I I wish there was more elaboration on this one because I'm not... How do the angels of the churches represent the church? And the answer is, as best as I, I don't know. The answer I'm going to say that a lot in Revelation, but as best as I can understand, the lampstands symbolize the church's earthly identity, and the angels, the stars, symbolize the church's heavenly identity. Think about it. You, as a believer, have a dual status. You are in this world, but you're not of this world. You're a sojourner and stranger on this earth, but you're citizen and resident of heaven. You are to be like one whose light shines on this world, the heavenly realities of who we are in Christ and what is to come. And so because we're like lamps, we're like stars, we are to let our light so shine through our good works and the good news that others might see and give glory to our Father in heaven. Well, the fact that Christ holds the seven stars in his right hand signifies Possession and authority. When you hold something in your right hand, it's something you want to hold tightly, something you hold dearly, it's something you possess and are in charge of. So the fact that Christ possesses is an authority over the church means that the church is never my church or your church. It is always and only Christ's church. The church is always to be focused on and fixated on Christ. The church is not about building around a personality. The church is not about having programs that you like and that are successful. The church is not about meeting any one of our preferences. It is always about upholding the praise and honor of Christ. That is what the church is about. We want to listen to him. We want to follow him. and We want to let other things go. Well, next, John describes Jesus' clothing in the second half of verse 13. Look there with me. He's like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash, Around his chest. So, this description comes from the clothing of the high priest in Exodus 28. So, the great high priest in there had this elaborate outfit that he would wear when he was functioning in his office as of the high priest, praying for the people, offering sacrifices for the people. And it was this beautiful clothing that was described as one who was clothed in beauty and glory. And so, what this means is in Christ, we have the one who, he is the author of this clothing, he is the one who wears it permanently because he is our great high priest. And that means he's full of sympathy for us. He is perfect in purity without sin. He is the one who has made an end of all of our sin through his own sacrifice of himself. He constantly intercedes for us and he never forgets us. Remember the high priest on his clothing had the stones of all the names of the tribes of Israel on his chest and on his shoulders. And where's your name? It is graven on his hands and written on his heart. Jesus as our high priest is the great secret of our perseverance to the end, of our faithfulness in the face of so much temptation. Left to ourselves, how could we ever make it safely home to heaven? So weak are our hearts, so busy is the devil, so many are the temptations of the world, so untamable are our tongues. But thanks be to God that we have a high priest who has secured our safety. Satan pours water on the fires of grace, but Jesus pours oil unceasingly to make it burn more brightly. The merciful and faithful high priest who began a good work in you on the cross will see it to completion at his return. Well, John goes on to describe Jesus' hair. Verse 14, the hair of his head were white like white wool, like snow. Now, I'm not an expert in this area, obviously, but I understand that for people who do have hair and it is this color, it is the sign of age, And often in the Bible, the sign of age is the sign of wisdom. And this this is hard for us. We live in a culture that idolizes youthfulness. We're looking for the fountain of youth. You you go to St. Augustine, apparently there's this fountain of youth you can pay to see. It doesn't do anything, just takes your money. But the values of the Bible are inverted. The, The Bible upholds and values those who live a long life that is marked by wisdom. We look up to and look after those who have lived a long life marked by wisdom. And Christ is the one who possesses infinite wisdom. His eternal head is crowned with infinite wisdom. The best of your wisdom is but a dim reflection of his because he's the source and we're just a stream. Jesus is never confused. He's never stumped. He's never at a loss as to what to do. He always makes the best plans, employing the best means to the best ends. Jesus is infinitely wise. And then Jesus' eyes in verse 14 are like a flame of fire. So his hair is white like wool and his eyes are like a flame of fire. Here's why you know this is not literal descriptions. If his eyes were flames of fire, they would burn and singe his white hair and it wouldn't be white. These are descriptions of his character, his attributes. Think of flames of fire. The intensity and heat of fire has the ability to reveal and expose the quality of a thing. Fire tells us what is dross, and what is precious metal. Fire tells us what is fireproof and what is flammable. It reveals and exposes the quality of a thing. So the gaze of Christ is one that does not just look at us, it looks into us. And it doesn't just look into us, it shows us what is in us, unlike any other gaze. The soul-searching gaze of Christ reveals and exposes to us, unlike anything else, what is truly in our hearts. Think of Peter's experience of this. Peter is told that he's going to deny Jesus. He tells Jesus, I'm not going to do that. Peter thinks he's right. He thinks Jesus is wrong. He denies Jesus, denies Jesus, denies him. And then Luke tells us that he makes eye contact with Jesus. And in that moment, he's not just looking at Jesus. Jesus is looking into him and showing him what is in him. And he weeps in repentance because he knows Jesus is right and I'm a sinner but fire refines and purifies as well it exposes reveals but it refines and purifies in fact the gaze of Christ reveals and exposes so that he might refine and purify Jesus didn't leave Peter to sit there weeping in his guilt and shame but after he was risen he said where's Peter and he goes to Peter Peter do you love me do you love me restoring him, refining him, purifying him. Jesus does not expose our sin to condemn us, but to conform us to his image. Jesus is not after your shame. He is after your sanctification. That's why he exposes and reveals. I remember as a rebellious teenager, one of my sinful schemes, and I was good at scheming, even though my dad was a private investigator of insurance fraud, I was exposed and I was caught. The foil was out. The plan had fallen apart. The dominoes fell. And at first, my reaction was, I can't hide in my sin anymore. I was mad because I had to be done with what I wanted to do. I couldn't sin in secret. But the Lord broke me, convicted me, and I began to say, thank you, Lord, for sabotaging my sinful schemes. Thank you for exposing my sin because I was refined and purified because of it. Well, due to time... I'm going to have to briefly summarize the rest of John's descriptions. And you can look at them. You can think about them, dwell on them. We have the feet of Jesus in verse 15. They're like polished bronze that's been refined in a furnace. If you've ever heated up metal, it can often get stronger, especially as you're taking two elements and putting them together. I'm not a scientist, but I hear that some of those elements go together. Some don't. Uh, But with bronze, there is two elements that go together that when you're heated up, they bond and they strengthen. So the rule of Christ is a stable, solid, unshakable foundation. If you build your life on Christ, you build on something that is a firm foundation. All other ground is sinking sand. The voice of Christ, in the second half of verse 15, is like the roar of many waters. And if you've been to Niagara Falls and you stand on the, the misty ship near Niagara Falls, it is an overwhelming, thunderous, authoritative noise that you can't really talk to anyone next to you on the ship because it is so powerful. It is a voice and a sound that cannot be ignored. And thus with Christ, he has an authority and a power with his words that cannot be ignored, that overrules and usurps all other voices. In fact, when we're attentive to the voice of Christ, it drowns out all the other shallow, superficial, unhelpful voices that vie for our attention in our culture. And then in verse 16, from his mouth, this is my favorite one, comes a two-edged sword. So picture this, or kids, if you want to draw this, I'd love to see what this looks like. But out of his mouth comes a sword that is sharp on two sides because the word of Christ cuts two ways. In one sense, the word of Christ pierces with conviction and it cuts with guilt. But not to leave us convicted and not to make us feel guilty, but he wounds in order that he might heal. And the scalpel of this savior is one who actually removes sin and heals And he defends against temptation and he guards with comfort with this double-edged sword. And finally, John saw the face of Jesus, verse 16, shining like the sun in full strength. So, Jesus is no longer veiled in the weakness and ordinariness of flesh. Think about it. In in the gospel accounts, you get this this picture of Jesus that he is very ordinary. There, There was... We don't find one physical description of Jesus in the Gospels. You know why? Because he was nothing special. There was nothing special about his physical appearance. He was very ordinary. In fact, so ordinary that people were very confused. Who is this guy? And yet now, in light of the resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, the veil of his glory has been lifted, like it was in that mountain scene in the Transfiguration for a second, And now the radiance of his majesty is shining through. One of the things Jesus prayed in the garden in John 17 was, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had before now. And that prayer has been answered. The glory of Jesus shines through. He's not just your buddy, pal, Jesus, that you can just kind of sit down next to a campfire with and sing kumbaya. He is a glorious, radiating effulgence of majesty. And so it's as if John, on a clear, sunny day, glanced at the sun just long enough, to describe some of its beauty and brilliance to us. But also he glanced at it just long enough so that his eyes were burning and hurt really bad. I don't know if you've ever tried to look at the sun. Kids, you probably shouldn't do this, but maybe just once quickly. It's beautiful, but it hurts. It burns. Sorry, parents. (laughs) Notice John's reflex reaction in verse 17. And this is, if you've ever tried to look at the sun, I don't mean to stay on this point, but... You cannot help but not, you can't stare. You have to look away. It hurts. Like Your, your body has a visceral reaction where you, you look and it's beautiful, but you have to turn away. And here's John in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. The man he walked with, talked with, ate with, leaned his head against his chest at the Last Supper, he's now falling before dead. He's curled up in the fetal position before this one whom he knew so well. Why is that? Why has familiarity now given way to being overwhelmed? Because when you see the bigness and perfection of Christ, you can't help but feel your own smallness and imperfections. If you ever stand at the edge of a really tall building or, or the Grand Canyon, you look, and it's, it's wonderful, it's overwhelming, but you, you want to step back a little bit, don't you? Or you get that feeling where your heart kind of sinks because you think, if I fall, that wouldn't be good, right? <laughs> Seeing his perfect purity makes you sense the depth of your impurity. Seeing his infinite wisdom reveals to you how foolish and senseless you have often been. Seeing his soul-searching gaze shows you You may be able to hide from others. You may be able to fool other people, but he knows. He sees everything. All things are laid bare and exposed before him who searches the thoughts and intents of the heart. Seeing his majestic authority as the judge of all mankind shows you that despite what your parents say about you, you're not really that good of a person. In fact, you deserve to be condemned in his presence. When we stand in his cosmic courtroom, all superficialities are stripped away and we are laid bare and exposed before him. That's why John fell down as though dead. Because he was in the presence of holiness and palpably, probably in a time like he had never experienced before, felt his own sinfulness in that moment. And it's easy for us to not fall down because when you have high When you have small thoughts of Christ, you can maintain high thoughts of self. It is easy to maintain high thoughts of self when you have small thoughts of Christ. But here's the most important thing, and we're going to move to the next part of this tour. When we have small thoughts about the majesty of Christ, we will also have small thoughts about the mercy of Christ. If Christ's glory and majesty and authority as judge is nothing to us, Grace will not be amazing to us. It'll be something we yawn at, we get bored by, we just kind of have to sing about on Sundays. Grace will never be amazing to you until you realize that, like John in verse 17, that the hand of authority which could crush you reaches out to you in tender mercy and lifts you up from your state of feeling as though dead and picks you up, who lifts you up out of that miry pit of sin and sets your feet on solid ground. Grace will never be amazing to you until you realize that the voice of thunderous, Omnipotent authority, which could have sentenced you to eternal death, says to you, do not be afraid. Fear not, like he did to John. And John perhaps could have said to that word, fear not, what about Rome? What about the religious persecution from the Jewish religious leaders? What about the prison sins? What about my my exile on Patmos? We could say to the fear not. What about the market? What about the economy? What about the hurricane? What about liberalism? What about my health? What about all the things about my future that I can't control, that I worry about all the time? Dear Christian, Christ says to you, do not be afraid because if I, in all my majestic authority, am for you, what can stand against you? That's why he says, fear not. As overwhelming as the majesty of Christ is, his mercy is as comforting to us. His majestic authority, when properly understood, makes us feel as though dead, but his mercy, when properly understood, makes us feel as if we've never been more alive before. His mercy comforts us because of what Jesus tells John in verse 18. I died. The judge who could have sentenced us and condemned us became the criminal who was condemned in our place for us. My sin, the very thing that makes me fall down as though dead before the feet of holiness, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Not in part, but the whole. And his mercy comforts us because the great enemy that we all have to face and fear death, which causes so much grief, so much heartache, is something we do not need to fear because it's been overcome by Christ. Look at verse 18. She said, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So remember, the audience to whom John is writing is one who is constantly living under the real threat of persecution that could cost them every earthly possession and even their earthly lives. And Jesus is saying to them, do not be afraid. I defeated that main enemy, death, that you fear, and I hold the keys to it. I'm the only one who holds the key to it. Death feels like this door that permanently locks, that we cannot open, that we are powerless. So we, we, if you've had this experience where you, where you you go to a door, that someone shut behind you, and they locked it because they're playing a joke, and you just want to get in. And my kids do it to their siblings all the time, so one kid ends up crying because they can't get in to that locked door that they desperately want to get into. And when we face the loss of death, or we feel threatened by it, it feels like we're about to enter into a door that permanently locks that we cannot open. And Christ says, I have the key, don't be afraid. I want to close by sharing this story from uh, Nancy Guthrie. This is from her commentary in Revelation. She so powerfully illustrates the comforting reality of this truth, that Christ holds the key of death in Hades. Listen to what she says. Have you ever needed to hear Jesus say, don't be afraid, I hold the keys to death? I have. I have. In 1998, my husband and I had a daughter we named Hope. That name seemed to fly in the face of everything about her life, because from the world's way of looking at things, Hope's life was hopeless. Hope was born with a rare metabolic disorder called Zellweger syndrome. It meant that she was missing a tiny subcellular particle that rids the cells of toxins. On her second day of life, a geneticist told us that there was no treatment, no cure, and that most children with the syndrome live less than six months so when we took hope home from the hospital we weren't taking her home to live with us we were taking her home to die i remember when that reality began to really hit me after we've been home a couple of weeks we know everyone will will die someday but this was different i realized that the day was quickly approaching when hope would either die in my arms or i would go to her crib and find her dead and fear began to settle in on me I feared what her death would be like for her and for me and how difficult her life might become as we waited for that day to come. Hope was with us 199 days. The day I dreaded came when David got up in the middle of the night to check on her and she was cold to the touch. Jesus, the the one who holds the keys to death, opened the door for her. You may have also faced a day like that, a death like that. Or maybe you have a deep-seated fear about the death of someone you love or maybe it's your own death that fills you with fear, this is why we need to gaze intently at the glorified, resurrected Jesus that John writes about in this book. Through the words of this book, Jesus reaches out to us, assuring us that we need not fear because he holds the keys to death. Because Jesus emerged from death with the keys in his hands, because He is alive forevermore, the day is coming when Jesus is going to give all who trust in him a glorious resurrection body that looks like his imperishable, unfading, One day, Paul tells us in Philippians that Jesus is going to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. One day, Jesus, who holds the keys to death, is going to lock the door of death for good and unlock the door to life forever. And then he's going to throw away the key. What a majestic and merciful Savior we have. May our thoughts of him increase and thoughts of self decrease would you please turn with me to page eight your bulletin as we close the sermon with a responsive reading from the very ending of revelation reminding us of our hope I read the words in italics would you respond with the word there in bold he who testifies to these things we've just heard says surely i am coming soon amen the grace of the lord jesus be with you all amen let's pray our Lord and our God, we pray